Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of druggings, violence, assassination, and suicide. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. To get help on mental health and suicide prevention, visit spotify.com resources. On the morning of June 2nd, 1994, a group of reporters stood on the hillside of a cemetery that overlooked Fort Detrick. It was here that CIA scientist Frank Olson was buried. Eric Olson, now pushing 50, was shaking in anticipation. After more than 40 years, he was about to see his father's remains for the first time. A crane dug into the dry earth above Frank's grave, Almost two hours later, the machine lifted the grimy, rusted casket from the ground. It was then transferred to a police lab. Eric followed behind the caravan, eager for answers. When the team finally cracked open the box, they were shocked to find Frank Olson's body hadn't been completely worn down by nature. Instead, it appeared to hold on to some very crucial secrets. Secrets that completely changed the narrative behind Frank's cause of death and suggested there could have been another player involved in his demise. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the death of Frank Olson, an American military scientist working with the CIA. As the story goes, he was privy to the most devious experiments in United States history, including MKUltra, until he started having second thoughts. Last time, we learned Frank was unwittingly dosed with LSD by MKUltra's mastermind, Sidney Gottlieb. A week later, he died after dropping 13 stories from a hotel window. Despite the suspicious circumstances, his death was ruled a suicide. Today, we'll investigate two conspiracy theories about Frank Olson. First, We'll examine whether Frank was involved in another top-secret operation called Project SPAN, a secret CIA experiment that some theorists say plunged an entire French town into hallucinatory chaos. Then we'll follow Frank's son, Eric, as he uncovers whether his father died by suicide or was killed for knowing too much. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. 
I know for me in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Frank Olson began his career as a scientist for the U.S. Army, but once he joined the Special Operations Division in 1950 and the CIA shortly after, he became privy to some of America's darkest secrets. It's alleged he saw prisoners being tortured at CIA's safe houses in Germany as part of the MK Ultra program. He also played a role in the agency's Operation Sea Spray, another project under the MK Ultra heading. Operation Sea Spray took place in 1950 in the heart of San Francisco. There, military ships released what they believed was harmless bacteria into the atmosphere. Their objective? See how vulnerable a U.S. city would be to a bioweapon attack. Problem was, the team's little experiment wasn't harmless at all. It sent 11 people to the hospital for urinary tract infections. One civilian who'd been living with prostate cancer died from the testing. So it makes you wonder, if Frank was involved with these two top-secret operations, what else was he working on? It's a great question. One that brings us to our first conspiracy theory, that Frank Olson and the CIA were behind the Pont-Saint-Esprit mass poisoning in France and that his knowledge of the incident might have led to his death. Pont-Saint-Esprit was a quaint French town of about 4,500, with medieval buildings lining the banks of the Rhone River. The morning of August 16, 1951, started well enough for its residents. But as the sun rose over those ancient rooftops, darkness enveloped the city. 
At around 10 a.m., a young farmer barged into a doctor's clinic, waving his arms wildly, as if being attacked by bees. When the physician asked what was wrong, all the man could do was mumble incohesive thoughts. Soon, another neighbor careened through the entrance, this one shrieking that snakes were slithering across his body. Outside the clinic, things weren't much better. The town had descended into hallucinatory chaos. One man leaped from a window, screaming that he was a plane. A five-year-old looked at her ceiling, terrified that tigers were going to eat her. There were reports of a local politician stripping naked and dancing in the town square. A young boy who tried to strangle his mother and an old man who shouted his belly was full of snails. Wives and husbands chased each other with knives. Even the animals were acting out of sorts. One dog reportedly chomped on rocks until its teeth broke into pieces. By the end of the day, the clinic had 75 patients. They were so overcrowded, the staff had to house around 20 of them in a barn. Many were chained to their beds with horse harnesses to keep them from hurting themselves. Author and conspiracy theorist H.P. Alberelli wrote that a Paris journalist was on the scene. They reported, quote, They are scenes taken straight out of the Middle Ages, scenes of horror and pathos full of sinister shadows. Fear hangs over the town everywhere. No one knows when it will end. Two days later, the chaos did subside, but many were carted off to insane asylums, complaining of nausea, stomach pains, and insomnia. Some still felt plagued by terrible burning sensations. At least four residents of Pont-Saint-Esprit died in a state of cardiovascular collapse as a result of the event. Authorities were desperate to find out what had happened to the townsfolk, terrified it could strike again. After an investigation, they concluded the culprit wasn't some supernatural force as they first expected. It was carbs. Yep, you heard that right. The hysteria was attributed to contaminated flour from a bakery. Apparently, the ergot fungus had spread across the country's rye fields. Coincidentally, this fungus shared the same compounds as LSD. The baker was hauled off to jail, and authorities closed the case. But that wasn't the end of it. Some townspeople suspected a conspiracy was at play. They believed authorities tried to silence the incident, that the inspection was stopped prematurely. And H.P. Alberelli thinks he knows why. The CIA wanted it that way. Alberelli suggested the Pont Saint-Esprit incident wasn't caused by bread gone bad at all, but by a Special Operations Division test during a trial run of an MKUltra sub-project. In order to get the full picture, let's go back to the years leading up to the event and see how Alberelli says it went down. In 1938, a chemist working at a Swiss pharmaceutical company made a discovery. He synthesized the compounds of ergot, the fungus sometimes found in rye, to create an entirely new chemical, lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD. 
Sandoz Laboratories experimented with the drug for years, and eventually word traveled to the United States to an anesthesiologist and Harvard faculty member named Dr. Henry Beecher. Beecher became interested in the use of LSD, especially because of its potency. In his writings, he mused that you could empty a small container of LSD near the main outlet of a water supply and let it flow into a small town. Then, while the residents went haywire, a military outfit could drop in and do what they needed to do without any resistance from the locals. Then, in the early 1950s, Dr. Beecher became involved with the CIA's quest to brainwash its enemies. According to Alberelli's theory, Beecher met with Frank Olson and his supervisor, Vincent Rouet, in France around that time. There, he consulted with them on an operation. Codename? Project SPAN. Alberelli believed this was a pre-MKUltra program, one where agents used aerosols to contaminate the local food or water supply at Pont-Saint-Esprit with an LSD mixture. Based on his research, Alberelli alleges they got the drugs straight from Sandoz Laboratories. Sandoz did work with the CIA a few years later. In fact, they supplied Sidney Gottlieb with LSD that would be used in later MKUltra experiments. It would have been the perfect cover-up. When investigators tested the bread, which most of the town consumed, they would find traces of the ergot fungus. But in actuality, the bread was laced with a synthetic chemical and not the naturally occurring ergot. And Alberelli claims a clandestine meeting confirmed all of this. During Frank's fatal trip to New York City, he met with Dr. Harold Abramson, the CIA bankrolled physician who suggested he check into a mental facility. Well, according to Alberelli, a week or two after Frank Olson's death, Dr. Abramson walked into a Manhattan bar. There, Abramson allegedly shared some cocktails with a Sandoz employee. After a few drinks, the rep blurted out, quote, the Palm Sanespree secret is that it was not the bread at all. He went on to say that it was actually a diethylamide-like compound. Based on Alberelli's theory, he wasn't the only loose-lipped employee. Alberelli claimed he spoke to a former special ops scientist who said the experiments in southern France went well overall. Aside from one thing, nobody expected anyone to die. He added, quote, it wasn't supposed to turn out that way. Perhaps this is what Frank was referring to when he told his wife Alice he'd done terrible things. The smoking gun was a document from the CIA that was submitted to the Rockefeller Commission in 1973. It was labeled the Pon Sana Spree and F. Olson files and included a note that said, quote, see to it that these are buried. I think that all but confirms it. Why would Ponson Esprit be on an official memo if the CIA had nothing to do with what happened there? Plus, Alberelli claimed that Frank was blabbering to his neighbor about the incident. If Frank was talking about the CIA poisoning a French town just a decade after World War II, it'd be terrible PR. 
It could have been enough motivation to silence him. But Alborelli's research has never been corroborated, and scientists over the years have refuted his theory. A lot of his information comes from anonymous sources that are impossible to verify. That's true. And while the chaos at Pont Saint-Esprit resembles a bad LSD trip, it's not a perfect match. Typically, LSD takes full effect in under two hours. Whereas in France, residents supposedly didn't feel the symptoms until 36 hours after they consumed the bread. There's also the fact that some died in a state of cardiovascular collapse. As unpredictable as LSD can be, it's not capable of creating those kinds of deadly symptoms. Although, one expert believes the ergot fungus wasn't to blame either. Because if there was something wrong with the rye fields, other bakeries in town would have been affected. So it seemed like Pont Saint-Esprit could very well have been targeted. Whether or not he had anything to do with it, what we know for sure is this. Frank Olson was no saint. And there were plenty of reasons the CIA would have wanted to keep him from talking. Coming up, a heated confrontation between Eric Olson and MKUltra's mastermind. Now back to the story. For two decades, Frank Olson's family was told he most likely died by suicide at the Statler Hotel in New York City. But after President Ford ordered an investigation into the abuses of the CIA, known as the Rockefeller Commission, the truth finally started to emerge. Back in 1953, the mastermind of MKUltra, Sidney Gottlieb, had drugged Frank and several other colleagues while on a retreat without their consent. And according to an internal CIA inquiry, that's what ultimately led to his death. After learning this, Frank's son Eric suspected there was more to the story than the government was letting on. So he devoted his life to finding out the truth behind the cover-up. Which brings us to our second conspiracy theory. The CIA assassinated Frank Olson to keep their secrets safe. In 1974, President Ford and the director of the CIA expressed regret to the Olson family for the Deep Creek Lake experiment, where Gottlieb tainted Frank's drink with LSD. They gave the family $750,000 as an apology settlement, in exchange for dropping their lawsuit, of course. The sum was supposed to be compensation. Instead, it was more like a curse. A few years later, Eric's sister used her cut to invest in a business in the Adirondack Mountains. So she, her husband, and their two-year-old son took a small aircraft to check out the property. The plane crashed. Everyone on board was killed. Frank's death set off a domino effect of tragedy, and Eric held the CIA responsible. As he once said, quote, the CIA didn't kill only our father. They killed our entire family again and again. Devastated by the loss of his only sister, Eric moved to Sweden, but the tragedy gnawed at him. After having a son himself, 
he realized he wouldn't heal until he knew the full truth about his father. So, in 1984, Eric flew home to the States, leaving his son and his career behind in Stockholm. He finally felt ready to confront the man who'd supposedly caused the death of his father, the ringleader of MK Ultra himself, Sidney Gottlieb. 40-year-old Eric, his mother, and his little brother Nils drove to Gottlieb's home in the mountains of Virginia. They found retirement seemed to be treating Gottlieb well. He'd taken up yoga, organic farming, goat herding, and even tried to run a commune. On the outside, Gottlieb seemed to be a changed man, but Eric suspected he was just as cunning as he was decades prior. Deftly, Gottlieb compared himself to Frank. He told Eric, quote, Your father and I were very much alike. We both got into this because of patriotic feeling, but we both went a little too far and did things that we probably shouldn't have done. One of those things, for Gottlieb at least, was the Deep Creek Lake incident. He told them he wanted to know what would happen if the scientists were taken hostage, whether they'd reveal classified intel or not. It seemed like a major reveal. He was saying Deep Creek Lake wasn't random, some prank, some momentary lapse of judgment. No, Gottlieb had targeted Frank. And as we mentioned last time, Olson was probably already on the CIA's radar as a security risk because of what he'd confessed to the UK psychiatrist. Still, Eric dug deeper. He wanted to know what happened the night of November 28, 1953, and if his father had really been murdered. At the mention of homicide, Gottlieb bristled. He denied the possibility Frank was thrown from the window of the Statler Hotel. Instead, he echoed the story pushed by the CIA that the LSD triggered something in Frank's brain, and after a week of mental health issues, he died by suicide. We shouldn't discount Gottlieb's claim. Psychedelic drugs can be powerful. The real question was whether they could drive someone to suicide. Using acid can lead to all sorts of adverse short-term effects, such as psychosis, anxiety, and paranoia. And there have been records of people attempting suicide while experimenting with the drug. A 2016 survey backed this up. Out of 1,993 participants who tried psychedelics, there were five who experienced increased thoughts of suicide. Three had made attempts. So the CIA cover story made sense in a way, especially in the 1960s when psychedelic hysteria was just beginning. But was that the case for Frank? I'm not so sure. Remember, the psychosis and paranoia people experienced were typically short-term effects, but Frank's death occurred 10 days after his drugging. A 2011 survey published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology reflected the mental health of nearly 20,000 people who'd used psychedelics prior. Based on the responses, the researchers concluded participants were no more likely to develop schizophrenia, depression, anxiety disorders, or feel suicidal long after using the drug. So contrary to the myth, the link between psychedelics and long-term psychosis is relatively low. 
And the CIA's general counsel, who internally investigated Frank's death back in 1953, agreed. At the time, they felt the idea that LSD triggered the suicide was inconsistent with the facts. It doesn't rule out the possibility Frank Olson died by suicide. But if he did, it does call into question whether the LSD drugging was a direct cause. Absolutely. But let's cut back over to the confrontation at Gottlieb's house for a minute. Because aside from the apparent smokescreen, Gottlieb was about to make things a lot worse. When the Olsons got up to leave, Gottlieb pulled Eric aside. He said he could tell Eric was troubled by his father's suicide and that he should really consider therapy. For Eric, this was a step too far and an obvious attempt at sowing doubt which lit a fire inside Eric. If Eric had been motivated for answers before, now he was fueled by pure rage. During this meeting, he realized his desire to prove Gottlieb played a role in his father's death. Around the same time, he hit the road to see former CIA agent Robert Lashbrook, Gottlieb's right-hand man. Lashbrook shared a room with Frank on that fateful night at the Statler Hotel. But now he lived in Ojai, California, another region known for its sprawling farms and a relaxed vibe. When the Olsons confronted Lashbrook, he appeared nervous and kept forgetting the details. Perhaps that's because he had trouble keeping his cover story straight. In her coverage of the story for GQ magazine, journalist Mary A. Fisher noted some glaring holes in Lashbrook's story. The night of Frank's death, Lashbrook told the police he woke to a flapping shade after Olson went out the window. But just hours later, he told a psychiatrist that he woke up to Frank standing in the middle of the room. When Lashbrook asked what was going on, Frank sprinted toward the window and hurled himself into the night. That's two very different versions of the same event. It's suspicious in my eyes. So I can only imagine Eric thought so too. That's probably why he took note when Lashbrook divulged new information, that Gottlieb was in New York with Frank before he died. It was either a huge confession or a slip up. And it made Eric wonder, Maybe Gottlieb had a more direct role in Frank's death than anyone imagined. Perhaps the only way Eric could truly get to the bottom of his father's death was to check out the crime scene for himself. Or, should we say, check in. Coming up, Eric pays a visit to room 1018A. Now, back to the story. By 1984, 40-year-old Eric Olson felt stuck. He'd tried to move on, but couldn't get over the one question that plagued him. Had his father actually died by suicide, or had he been murdered by the CIA? The idea led him back to where it all started, the Statler Hotel. Eric had heard so many stories about the place, probably picturing it in his mind his whole life. But now he'd finally get to see room 1018A for himself. 
Once inside, it probably felt surreal, lying in the same place his father had, hours before his death. As he investigated the layout of the room further, Eric had a revelation. The space was much smaller than he'd imagined. The pervading theory was that Frank had leapt headfirst into the closed window, then fell to his death. But with such a small room, there was no way his father could have gained enough speed to leap through the closed blinds and break through the glass. Plus, the sill was too high, and there was a radiator in front of it. It reinforced his suspicion that the official story wasn't just untrustworthy, it was nearly impossible. As we mentioned last time, even the night manager on duty had trouble believing it. Eric tried to imagine what really happened. He probably looked toward the bathroom, where the cops had found Lashbrook cowering more than 30 years earlier. Perhaps Lashbrook was instructed to hide there while either CIA agents or hired assassins entered the room, smashed the window, and tossed Frank out. Eric and others have theorized that by keeping him out of the loop, Lashbrook would know as little as possible. And it may explain why he had trouble keeping his story straight. But of course, this would require proof. So far, Eric had interviewed his main suspect, Sidney Gottlieb, had questioned Lashbrook, his lackey, and had scoured the crime scene. But if he really wanted answers, he'd have to examine the body. A task that was easier said than done. Frank's body had been buried nearly 30 years ago. It was unclear whether the corpse would still be intact. Plus, Eric needed his mother's permission, a line he wasn't willing to cross at the time. As we said last episode, Alice Olson had no interest in peeking behind the curtain. The loss of her husband was a huge blow. Digging up his grave was too much for her to bear. So Eric and his brother Nils waited. In the aftermath of talking to Lashbrook and Gottlieb, 10 years passed. Eric followed leads, hoping for evidence that would blow the case wide open, maybe keep him from having to exhume his father's remains. But nothing came. In 1993, Alice succumbed to pancreatic cancer. Shortly after burying his mother, Eric and his brother Nils realized it was time. They had to exhume their dad. On the morning of June 2nd, a small group huddled around Frank's grave. A crane tore into the dry earth, and after two hours, the rusty casket was lifted out like an ancient artifact. The forensic scientist in charge of the autopsy, Professor James Stars, was a well-known criminologist. He expected the remains to have fallen victim to nature, but when they cracked open the box, Professor Stars was shocked. Frank's skin was discolored, but he was still recognizable. Eric said seeing his father's body was, quote, one of the greatest moments in my life. I actually felt relieved because I finally had some resolution. Back in 1953, a cursory autopsy was performed, but who knows how much sway the CIA might have held over that process. This would be the first time that a truly independent analysis was performed. And the findings were immense. 
Professor Stars discovered Frank had no cuts on his head or neck. If he dove through the glass, as was the official story, there would have definitely been lacerations on the top of his body. Even more shocking is what he did find. According to the hotel manager, Frank landed on his back, but above his left eye, near his temple, Frank's skull was disfigured. The wound was the size of a fist, and it suggested one thing. Before Frank fell 13 stories, the scientist had been hit in the head. For Eric, it changed everything. But I'm not quite convinced yet. Maybe Frank landed on his back and his head ricocheted off the pavement. Well, apparently the pathology team ruled that out. If Frank did fall on his face, the trauma would have been far worse. The velocity likely would have crushed his skull. And while there was one scientist who thought Frank might have hit his head on the window frame during his fall, the rest were in agreement. Frank suffered trauma before he went through the window. Eric and Professor Stars were convinced someone knocked Frank unconscious, either during a struggle or while he slept. Then the window was shattered. Unlike the official report, which said Frank jumped or fell, the pathologist said, quote, I think Frank Olson was intentionally, deliberately, with malice aforethought, thrown out of that window. However, the CIA denied any wrongdoing. A spokesperson said the death was investigated thoroughly and no evidence of homicide had been discovered. But it didn't matter what the official word was. Eric believed he had something undeniable. Two years after the autopsy, Eric took this information to the Manhattan District Attorney. Due to the settlement, the Olson family couldn't sue the government. But if they could prove a murder, well, that was a whole other story. To his surprise, the DA agreed to reopen the investigation and assigned two prosecutors to the case. They wanted to interview William Colby, who was the CIA director at the time of the Rockefeller Commission. This was the same man who vaguely apologized to the Olson family and tossed a packet of redacted files at them. But before the lawyers could get to him, Colby disappeared. One of the first officers to arrive at Colby's home told Alberelli, quote, there were still dinner items on the table, lights and radio on. It was like he'd gotten up to answer the phone or the door and then just vanished. A week later, his body washed up on a sandbank along the Wicomico River. The medical examiner concluded he'd suffered a heart attack or a stroke while canoeing and fell into the chilly waters. Next, prosecutors went after Vincent Rouette, Olson's old supervisor who first broke the news to the family in 1953. But he gave conflicting answers. He claimed he also felt the terrible effects of the LSD experiment for weeks after the experiment. Perhaps this was his way of justifying Frank's official cause of death. The district attorneys then asked him, If he was still feeling the effects of the drugs, then why did the agency trust him to escort Frank to New York? Rouette didn't have an answer for that one. And when the prosecutors tried to follow up on the question three months later, Rouette had also died unexpectedly. 
of an alleged heart attack at church. So the DA set its sights on Lashbrook, but he managed to initially dodge their subpoenas. When a sheriff showed up at his house, he said he didn't know anyone by the name of Lashbrook. The DA's case stalled before it even got off the ground. Prosecutors assured Eric they'd continue to work it, but they needed time. So once again, Eric hit a dead end. That is, until 1997, when the expansion of the Freedom of Information Act forced the CIA to release even more classified documents. And what Eric found made his stomach churn. The document was titled, A Study of Assassination. It was published just a month and a half after Frank's death. The purpose of the manual was to offer guidance for hitmen, operatives, and others tasked with the wet work of taking out the CIA's targets. There were all sorts of techniques, from how to administer a deadly dose of morphine to how to sever the spinal cord with a knife. But there was one passage that left Eric paralyzed. When it came to executing secret assassinations, the document read, quote, The contrived accident is the most effective technique. It then went on to say, quote, The most efficient accident in simple assassination is a fall of 75 feet or more onto a hard surface. The manual not only gave instructions on how to deliver a blow to the temple, but also tips on how to push a target over the edge of an elevator shaft, a stairwell, or, <laughs> get this, a window. Eric felt like he was reading a play-by-play of how his father died. Even the assistant DA said the instruction was, quote, tailor-made for Olson's fall. The assassination manual appeared to be a smoking gun, but it wasn't the only how-to program that seemed to reference Frank's death. According to British journalist Gordon Thomas, the Mossad, Israel's answer to the CIA, studied the Olson case, and they included Frank Olson's death in their assassination training program as an example of a perfect kill. Between the assassination manual and the Mossad training program, the coincidences were sickening. Eric hoped the DA team could tie it all together, especially if they were able to corner their last big witness, the organic farming mastermind of MK Ultra himself, Sidney Gottlieb. But by March 1999, they'd missed their chance. At the age of 80, Gottlieb also passed away. Some say he had a history of heart problems, but his wife wouldn't tell the press the official cause of death. Still, the DA felt like they had enough information to make at least one correction. After Eric's 40-year hunt to solve the mystery, they changed the cause of death on Frank Olson's file. They crossed out suicide and wrote, unknown. Eric felt vindicated in a major way. He told journalist Mary A. Fisher, quote, My suspicions have been confirmed beyond my wildest dreams. A snake under every rock and rocks as far as the eye can see. So much of the evidence for this case was circumstantial. But in the end, it seems Eric and his family really did manage to get one step closer to the truth. As we've heard in past episodes like Operation Midnight Climax, 
stories about the CIA's transgressions under the MKUltra project were no work of fiction. They've been proven to be a dark corner of American history, one that Frank Olson, unfortunately, might have fallen victim to. I agree. There was definitely more to the story than the Olsons were first told. The hematoma clearly showed Frank had been injured before exiting that window. Plus, the assassination instruction manual makes it glaringly obvious that the CIA kept deadly secrets. If Gottlieb and company did conspire to kill Olson, which is bad enough already, it's tragic that they didn't consider the toll this would take on the rest of the family. And the rest of the world. From 1945 until the Rockefeller Commission exposed the CIA's abuses, the agency has an admitted history of attempted assassinations all over the globe. Gottlieb himself testified that he hand-delivered a toxin to the Congo for what ended up being a failed attempt to kill the Congolese prime minister who was deemed too close to Russia. With that kind of culture, I can see why the CIA could have turned against one of its own. And while we're still not 100% sure what happened with Frank that night, there's one question I just can't get out of my head. What if Frank Olson knew too much and risked exposing it all? I mean, if the U.S. is capable of killing its own civilians? That's something I don't even want to think about. It could cause you to lose faith in your home, your government, and your country. But the opportunity to ask these questions is what gives us hope. If anything, it's at least a way to keep Frank Olson's legacy alive. If you or someone you know is feeling hopeless or struggling emotionally, visit spotify.com resources for help. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We're here on Mondays and Wednesdays with all new episodes. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ben Caro, edited by Wendy Sobroso and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Brian Petrus, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Carter Roy and me, Molly Brandenburg.